Open up with me please in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews and we begin a new chapter today. We, we made it out of chapter 8 and we begin chapter 9, Hebrews chapter 9. I would like to first off read verses 1 through 14. It is my aim today to, to cover these passages. I think we'll I think we'll make it. Uh, verses 1 through 14, so we'll read these verses and go to the Lord in prayer. Let us look here at Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14, and hear the word of the Lord. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick, and the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer, and the ark of the covenant, overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, at the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet or still standing, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. But Christ, being come, a high priest of good things to come by a greater a more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. He entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Let us go to the Lord in prayer. O Heavenly Father, Lord, what beautiful, profound, and sublime truths did we just read from your word. Oh, Father, we pray that we are so limited as your sons and as your daughters. And Lord, fully comprehending the depth of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we see in these words, Lord, places where the limits of our own minds can never fully appreciate or go. But God, we do come in all sincerity and confessing our humility and limits before you. And we ask you, Father, would you send your spirit? Help us, O oh God, to learn and to feed and to grow as your people from these words that we just read. Help us to see Christ. Help us to grow in our appreciation of who He is and who we are in our union with Him. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. 
Well, we have come out of chapter 8, and we move into chapter 9, and as you already see, there are many overlapping themes, and I confess, as I began to approach chapter 9, I said, well, um, I'm going to be preaching the same sermons that I've already preached over (laughs) the last, you know, three months, Uh, but, but, we, we will see that there is still much for us to unfold, there's still much for us to brush off and to, to glean and to go even deeper into what the Lord is wanting to reveal to us here in chapter 9 in the context of dealing with Christ as our Redeemer, as our High Priest, in these themes of sanctuary, sacrificed, priesthood, and covenant. I was thinking about this more this week and just, you know, kind of where we're coming from in Hebrews chapter 8, dealing with Jeremiah 31 and and why he was using that prophecy that it was now being fulfilled and accomplished in Jesus Christ. And I began to read here in chapter 9, and again, it's bringing us back to these themes of the sanctuary and, and and the sacrifice and a conscience before God. Next week, we're going to be getting into more in depth the covenant. And, you know, I, I paused and I thought to myself, this truly is what we call in the construction industry a spec book. Uh, Hebrews serves as a technical spec book of the gospel. Consider with me for a moment, those who have been tracking along in this sermon series, how, did you recall how we ended chapter 8 last week? in looking at our understanding of the prophecy of Jeremiah. And I concluded by making the observation that, friends, this is just the gospel. This is the gospel, what's promised in Christ, what's promised in being one of Christ, the work he will do within you, and uh, what it means to be one of his, having his law written upon your heart, verses uh, chapter 8, you know, verses 8 through 13. I concluded that this really is just unpacking the new covenant, which is the gospel. And and then as we move forward in chapter 9, that's still what he's doing. The inspired writer is wanting to very clearly articulate to these first century ethnic Jews who have converted out of Judaism into Christianity, this is the blueprint, this is the spec book, this is the guideline of the gospel that we preach to you and you accepted and that you now at this point are still professing. And I'm encouraging you, he was encouraging them to confess and hold on to this gospel until the very end. Now, remember, as we just step back a little bit before we rush into chapter 9, that's the overall theme of the book of Hebrews. He's coming to these Christians who for whatever reason, we picked it up already, especially in a heightened sense in chapter 6, they were teetering. They were wavering. In some way, in some form, they were attempting to either add to the gospel or change the gospel. And so he's getting down, he's doubling down as if it were, and to absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt, clarifying for them once again the gospel that they already had received. I don't do this a lot, but as part of my introduction, I want to share with you a story. Um, A couple years back, you know, I'm in the masonry construction industry, and when we built a wall, we were building a wall, in this case, at a school, and the architect had a reputation. He was an architect that was very picky about the specs. Um, He was very picky, young one's about how we as the Masons followed the rules of how the masonry was to be installed. Now, not to bore you with too many details, but all of you are accustomed to looking at a a, a brick wall. And you know the little lines in between the bricks, those are called mortar joints. Okay, that's the joints that hold the bricks together with the mortar. The mortar is the glue, as if it were. Well, there's a speck to a skilled craftsman that we have to meet when we lay those bricks And the mortar joints have to be a consistency within a square foot area of being the same size. See, you learn something new at church, don't you? You never thought that. You look at a wall and you go, oh, it looks like a nice wall. But an architect, oh, an architect looks at the wall much different. And a mason would too. They look at the wall and they start looking within a certain square foot of area. Is this a good job or a bad job? Uh, they, They stand at the bottom of a brick wall and they look up. And there should be a 
a consistent vertical line. You shouldn't be seeing it going back and forth like this. And now you're never going to look at a brick wall the same. You should be able, a good mason will keep that line plumb and straight. This is the aesthetics of a successful masonry installation. Well, there was this architect being very picky on this job, and he called into question our work. We think that there were some other political underlining issues of why he was making it difficult for us, but that's neither here nor there. What did we do at that meeting when he wanted to call into question our work? What did we bring to that meeting? Friends, we didn't bring our subjective opinions. No, 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 that won't be tolerated in a meeting where we're going to objectively analyze this work on this wall. Every single person I noticed it, and I was expecting it, was walking up to the meeting. It was winter, I remember, at that time, and so everything was under plastic, and so we're walking up to the plastic building, you know, the tent, and everybody had tucked up under their shoulders their copy of the specs. Because it's the rules, right? This is what we're going to use. It's not your interpretation. It's not my my interpretation. It's what does the specs say. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. The book of Hebrews is laying out a spec book of the gospel. It's not what you think the gospel is. It's not what I think the gospel is. It's not what you think the blood of Christ did. It's not what you think the blood of Christ made possible. He tells us in clear Objective terms. What the gospel is, what, the, what was required to make it possible, and what was accomplished by the blood of Christ. And so in that sense, coming into chapter 9, understanding the backdrop here, of he's trying to get them to be careful from wavering on the gospel, they had this epistle. And no matter what would come after they received this epistle, that it could always lay it open, Brother Ross, and going back to our Jeremiah 28 reading, when Hananiah would come into the midst, when the, when the early heirs of Arianism or Socinianism would come along into the midst, what could they do, brothers and sisters? They could open the epistle of Hebrews and say, wait a minute. What he's saying, does that match what the apostle told us in Hebrews? And it's just a, it's a blessed thing to have the Word of God in this way because it serves the same function for, for us today. Uh, you have the epistle of Hebrews. And so whenever someone's presenting to you an idea about these themes, the priesthood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, the scope of His atonement, uh, you know, the efficacy of His death, what it means and how you're justified. Brothers and sisters, from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 8, we have been unpacking these themes and it is given to you as a means of grace to filter everything that you hear related to these precious truths. These are the foundations of the gospel. Today, as you've already seen, we're clearly looking at Christ's role as the priest in the work of redemption. And I just want to read something for you. I didn't have this in my notes, but I just thought about it. Uh, In the Pillars of Truth. This is the Pillars of Truth. You have them in your pew. If you want to turn there, you can. It's page 86. And it comes um, from us, or it comes to us rather, from the Baptist Catechism. And it's questions 23 through 26. They're, they're dealing with Jesus Christ as the Redeemer. And question 23 asks the question, which I think leads us wonderfully into where we're at today. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? And the answer is. God, having out of His mere good pleasure from all eternity, electing some to everlasting life, He did enter into a covenant of grace. Friends, this is what we have been learning about, the new covenant. This covenant that is conditioned, not by law, not by your rule keeping. It is an unconditional covenant based upon grace. Ill-deserved, unmerited grace. This is what we've been learning about. From all eternity, elected some to everlasting life in this sea of fallen humanity to enter into a covenant of Christ to deliver them out of the state of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a Redeemer. That was chapter 8, verses 8 through 13. Remember that? God didn't leave them in that state, brothers and sisters. He did a supernatural work subscribing His law upon their hearts. They became His people. He became their God. 
And he promised because of the Redeemer's blood never to remember their sins or their lawless deeds ever again. Well, question 24, if you're following me, says, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, this goes back to Hebrews chapter 1, became a man. And so was and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And this is the focus of chapter 9 and it will be chapter 10. Christ the Redeemer coming, as we will see in verse 12 today, being come up until chapter 10, His priestly work as the mediator of a new covenant. As a mediator of a new covenant. Look with me at verse 13 of chapter 8. The theme here is, is, is this old covenant's vanishing away. And, 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 it, and there's this other covenant, what he's calling a new covenant, a second covenant. He calls it a better covenant. This covenant that Jesus Christ, this, this, this Redeemer we just read about in the Baptist Catechism, has come to mediate and establish. Now, think about what's going on here in verse 13. He says, a new, this new covenant, he has made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. This theme of this transition going between the old and the new is where we're at here today. And and it picks up. He's writing this in the middle of the AD 60s. Right? And so this, this new covenant, this glorious reality that Jesus Christ came in the flesh to accomplish is in their day and age being realized and they're part of that. And he saw it necessary to plant their feet firmly in what that meant because it was to serve as a bulwark. It was to serve as a shield from their doubts, from their temptations to going back to the old covenant structure. This is where we're at. These people, I I was telling a friend today, I don't think we can fully appreciate the struggle that these first century Jews would have had. The, the only way that I can uh, uh, articulate it or illustrate it would be is if you were, someone was trying to convince you to become a Muslim. You would say, whoa, wait a minute, no way. You, you, you see, if you, if you were to convert to another religion and you were a Christian, you would be bringing into that, you would be trying to bring into that other things from your Christian past. Well, this is who these people are. They were brought up in the old covenant structure. The temple at this point, Herod has already almost, and some uh, uh, historians believe, made it even more glorious in the second temple construction than it was in prior centuries. He was granted the permission. He had the funds. I mean, it's glorious. It's beautiful. And it's part of their everyday life. And there would have been this tendency to not fully grasp and fully understand what they had in the new covenant. They would have been tempted to go back. This is the audience. This is the context in which this epistle is coming in. And so it's only natural that he goes into chapter 9 with all of that in the background to talk about the sanctuary. They were first century ethnic Jews and this is all they've ever known. Their hearts would have still been attached as if it were to the bells and the smells of the sanctuary. The rest of their family members would have still been going to the temple they still would have been practicing the old covenant rituals. And there would have been an inclination, even amongst the best of them, to say, can I have that and Christ? Is there some way we could blend the two? And so this is why he's coming into the discussion and building the contrast between the earthly sanctuary and Christ's sanctuary to help them to see how much more superior the sanctuary that Christ serves in, that Christ functions in, in his priesthood, over that in which they can see and they're tempted to go back to. We see that very quickly in verse number 9, this contrast that he's trying to build. Look at verse number 1 in chapter 9. Verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. The writer immediately contrasts here this first covenant and this worldly sanctuary with Christ's heavenly sanctuary in this language. It's a worldly sanctuary. 
And his purpose is really clear here. He wants these first century Jewish Christians to grasp the covenantal significance of what Christ has fully done in lieu of what he just told them in chapter 31. What he just told them in chapter 31 as we trug down through that was that everything that the patriarchs and everything that the prophets have told us has been accomplished in Jesus. We're in the moment right now, he's saying, beloved. The transition is is happening. That, That old covenant scaffolding structure, that superstructure that has been everything we've ever known, that everything is pointed to. It's now, it's accomplished in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is why he's continuing to contrast the worldly sanctuary with Christ's heavenly sanctuary. By continuing the inferior and the superior comparisons of Christ's priesthood, these themes of Christ's covenant, this theme of Christ's sanctuary, his sacrifice, he's praying that they will better appreciate and more fully embrace who they are and in their union with Christ. He uses the old covenant sanctuary starting in verses 2 through 5, and then he makes an application of it in verses 8 and 10. And before we look at verses 2 through 5, what's helpful for us is just to remind ourselves that the tabernacle that the Jews had and that they constructed and the design of the temple that would have been in Herod's time when this is written really had the same design, the same basic layout. Uh, There was, of course, a lot more ornate Uh, materials used in the temple, then the wilderness tabernacle that Moses was given designs to pitch and to make, as he described in chapter 8. But the function, the the design was basically the same. You had an outer court, and in the outer court, this is just where the common people, everybody would be at, right? And this is the people that are called the covenant people of God. They were not allowed into the inner sanctuaries. They had to stay on the outside. And then you had Two inner sanctuaries, you had the outer sanctuary where all the priests could come, but not the people. They had to stay outside. But then you see, as we go on here, there was the inner sanctuary that only one man can come into, the high priest, and he's going to do that once a year. Well, why is he making all this? Why is he making a big deal of all of this? Well, let's, let's dive into it and see. Verse number two describes the first sanctuary. This is the first holy place in the tabernacle. He, he describes some furniture there, a candlestick, a table, the show bread. This is where the, the bread was that the priest had, the holy bread. And they would, they would offer that as a sacrifice. And, 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 and these things had a particular place in the saints where they stood. And again, this is only accessible to the Levite priests. Okay? I'm, I'm making that a point because there's an important observation we have to make about that. Verse 3, you see, he continues the description. He provides details that there were the curtains or the veils that separated this place where all the priests could come from the second or inner sanctuary, the holiest of holies, where the high priest could only go. And he could only go there once a year. Notice the limitations. Notice the restrictions of their access to God. And the sins that he could atone for, if we were to go do all the homework in Leviticus, was just the sins of ignorance. Any high-handed sins, adultery, murder, theft, so forth and so on. There was no mercy granted for that in the Mosaic Law. No, it was met with judgment and with punishment. And so on this great day of atonement, the high priest would come in once a year as the high priest and he would make a sacrifice for the sins of the people, the sins of their ignorance. Now, we can stop right here and what he's trying to do in using this worldly sanctuary and what he's going to show us in a minute with the heavenly sanctuary and notice why he's making this sanctuary and this limitations such an important point because remember in the prophecy of jeremiah something that was fundamental and significant in understanding it was that those barriers between us and god were taken away we it's go back and look at chapter 8 chapter 8 part of the the fulfillment of the new covenant that jesus inaugurates that jesus fulfills in verse 10 I will make the house of those days. I will put my law into their mind and write them upon their hearts. They, I will be to them a God and they shall be a me to pe- a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord for they all will know me. There was 
a salvific knowledge of God. There was a communion with God that was unbreakable by any veil. It was unbreakable, this communion with God, by any conditions, covenantal conditions. And so what the author wants us to see here is remember the restrictions that were in that sacrificial temple experience. You people were on the outside. Your access to God could only be and always was through this priest who could go in once a year and give you access. And then after that, you had to wait a whole other year. He's wanting them to see that this relationship, this access to God in the new covenant, as he's described or as we looked at in the prophecy of Jeremiah 31, is profoundly different. Why would you ever want to go back to that? Why would you ever want to go back to where you are restricted in the sense of your access to God and calling him Abba Father? But secondly, we notice something else in verses 2 through 7, where, the, where it says in verse 7, they performed their duties. Notice in verse 7, they went into the, the, the high priest went into the second inner sanctuary alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered, what? For himself and for the errors of the people. Well, this is hearkening and this is going back to what he said in chapter 7, verse 27. Remember there, he told us something about the inferior priests. He said, Jesus, in contrast, need not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this, Jesus, he died once when he offered up himself. He's still showing them, isn't he? The inferiority of those priests and their entire sacrificial system. Just as the simple design of the tabernacle and then later the temple restricted the people's limits and their access to God, which they enjoy as his covenant people through faith in the Messiah, subscribed on their hearts. So likewise, brothers and sisters, these priests of the old covenant, they were limited as well, he's pointing out. They were sinful men. They were limited in the sacrifices that they offered and they could never do what only Jesus Christ through his own sacrifice could do. And so it begs the question to the person who's the first century Jew wanting to go back to the old covenant system or try to mix anything with the new covenant. Why would you want to go and participate in a system with priests that are limited in their own ability to offer and make full atonement for sin through those sacrifices when you have Christ, as he's already told them. You see, he's, he's drilling this down. He's wanting them to see there is nothing for you left in that old system. Now, how many times, if I could make just an application, do we do the very same thing? We do the very same thing. We come to the spec book of the gospel. We did this a couple Sundays ago when we were looking at uh, the lesson in Romans 4. And, you know, that was all in the context of the, the, the missionary opportunity we had in India to teach them what justification by faith was alone. And as good Protestants, we all say, Amen. Amen. That's true. It's, it's, it's by faith alone, in Christ alone. Glory be to God alone. And then. Not long after that, we, something happens, something occurs, and, and, and we, we begin to judge the status of our justification before God by our rule keeping. Or should I say, by our works, the, the, the quality of our works, the amount of our works. And, and, and we can begin to fall into the same ditch as what I'm trying to show you here that these first century Jews would have done. And every time we find ourselves in those kind of positions, as I preached before, you've got to come again and again to the foot of the, of the cross and you have to be reminded according to the objective facts that you're redeemed, you're justified by Christ's blood alone, through faith alone, and His finished work alone, capital A. And then you humbly ask the Lord, Lord God, help me. Lord God, I, I, 
Help me to serve. Help me to love. Help me to sacrifice. Help me to be like Christ. But you never, ever, ever want to go into a ditch of polluting the gospel or the, or the reason why you're justified of thinking that you add something to it. Your, your hands are like these priests. You're a sinful man. You're a sinful woman. You're a sinful girl. You cannot add anything to the precious redeeming blood of Christ. Well, those are some interesting observations to notice first about the limits of the sanctuary. The worldly sanctuary, as he described it in verse number 1. Now, he applies what this all was for us. Now, he makes a scriptural application. And here, as we've said it before, as we're reading our Bibles, when the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, opens up something and tells you what something in the Old Testament means, boy, you ought to have your highlighter out. Because this is one of the blessings and one of the joys of being in the new covenant. On this side of glory, at this particular point, after the scriptures have been canonized by the providential superintendents of God, we have his complete revelation before us. We can trust it as his word. And it's telling us what all of that meant. And boy, this will keep you on safe ground, especially with all the voices that surround the evangelical church today. So how does he apply what the worldly sanctuary, all this stuff was, after he's already demonstrated it was inferior, well then what was its use? He tells you in verses 8 and 10. Verses 8 and 10, he applies it. He says, the Holy Ghost, this signifying, your modern translation would say, uh, symbolizing that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle, this system, this temple, this tabernacle was yet standing. Now, this application is a parable. This application is a parable. I say it's a parable because in verse 9, look what it says. Which was a figure of for the time then present. That that Greek word translated in the English figure, the Greek word is parabele. Parabele. And that's where we get the English word parable. Now, we all know a parable is something that teaches us an important truth about something else. This is what a parable is. Jesus used parables in his teaching. He was using simple parables to help the people fully understand and comprehend a more profound truth, wasn't he? And so here... We're being taught that that entire tabernacle, its structure, the furniture, that he said in uh, verse 5, we cannot now speak particularly. We're learning here that all of that was a figure. It was a symbol. It was a parable to teach us something of greater significance. In other words, just as he taught us that the mysterious historical figure Melchizedek in chapter 7 was a parable revealing some sort of truth about Jesus Christ. Here, we are led to understand that the entire sacrificial system containing these particular portions of furniture, animals, priests, the priest's wardrobe, etc., etc., they all contain the New Testament is teaching us unequivocally, this isn't up for debate, it's not an opinion, they were teaching us something significant about the priesthood, the sanctuary, and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was their entire purpose. Their entire purpose. To point forward to this revelation that we're learning today in the person and the work of the Messiah. And so we come to the application now in verses 8 and 10. Knowing that it's a parable, it's something to teach us about the truth of Jesus, and this is what it does. Verses 8 and 10 teach us that the Holy Spirit designed the rituals to show that the earthly tabernacle was only a type or a picture of of true salvation that it can never provide. Look at verse number 8. True salvation. The Holy Ghost was signifying that the way, here it is, true salvation into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest. 
The holiest of all is what he just offered the readers in chapter 8 and the Jeremiah covenant promise. To finally, finally be free of having my iniquities and my sins remembered. Entering into a continued covenantal arrangement with God that He will always be my God, not predicated upon any conditions or legal arrangements. This is what was always held forth and that the true people of God under the administration of the Old Testament were looking toward. We saw this, did we not, beloved? Jeremiah most abundantly, Ezekiel, Malachi, they all were pointing the people to this promise of true salvation, of entering into the holiest of all by which you always were kept on the outside, but through the Messiah you will be brought into communion and fellowship with God forever. He will never remember your iniquity and your sins no more. That system, that tabernacle, can never offer it. It was only there to show you that you need to keep hoping and promising, looking forward towards realization. And he's telling them the realization is now. You have it in Jesus. So again, stop looking back at it. Stop looking toward it. Number seven, or verse number seven paints a picture. Does it not? We, we observe that in the inadequacies connected to the first covenant. That covenant arrangement couldn't provide unbroken and free access to God. No, it, it was broken, their access to God. Year after year. Verse number 9, that system could not provide a, 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 a conscience that could be at peace with God. And we looked at this last week as some of the blessings or the fruits of the new covenant as promised by Jeremiah chapter 31. Notice once again with me, he uses these themes here that they would have been well acquainted with. And it's meant to communicate what he's summarizing in verse number 10. They were all of these means, all of these things to serve a one particular purpose. And he describes that they were all only there until a time of reformation. They stood, he says, in his application of what these things were for. They stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until this time of reformation. And he's saying that that time of reformation, back to chapter 8, verse 13, is taking place. The old waxeth old and is vanishing away. And the glorious fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 in the new covenant, it is dawned. It is here. The time of reformation is here. So no longer do you need those things. You don't need the temple anymore. You don't need those sacrifices anymore. Now the most practical application as evangelicals today that you and I can make, and we've observed this before, is it is absolutely nonsense for evangelicals to be supporting the rebuilding of any temple in Jerusalem. These texts are clearly articulating a fact, beloved. There is no more use for the temple. Why? Because the time of reformation has occurred. He has come in the fullness of times, Galatian. Christ has come. And in Him is the true tabernacle, is the true temple. This is why He told the woman at the well, there's going to come a day where you're going to worship God in truth and spirit, and it's not connected where you worship Him. Because I am the true temple. I am the true sacrifice. All of these things only pointed to this blessed reality which came in time, space, and history with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This choice language, I think, in verse number 10 is interesting because the implication of this language cannot be avoided. The implication is that the old covenant and everything attached to it previously established by God as a legal standing between Him and the people is now abolished. So that legal standing is completely taken away. There was an interesting conversation at the dinner table last night. Uh, don't have this in my notes, but it, it's connected to this of why it is we worship on Sunday instead of Saturday. And here's a prime example. I was trying to convey this uh, to, to my family. Think about where we're at here in Hebrews. The old vanishing away. The glorious new being established and more fully experienced and revealed. All of that system being done away with as being not necessary for 
faith and salvation and living for God. No, going into the new covenant, the old covenant judicial system, the Deuteronomic system, has nothing for you but general equity. You know, stealing's bad because of the Mosaic law. You know, adultery's bad because of the Mosaic law, so forth and so on. But moving forward, this entire system is being changed. Huge change. I mean, do we not grasp the huge, significant, profound change that's being articulated here in the text? The temple that's always been the pinnacle of your identity as a people now doesn't matter. What? Well, that's a big change. What do you mean we don't have to go to Jerusalem and we don't have to make sense? No, it doesn't matter no more. And then what's the Lord Jesus do? During Passover, he abrogates and chains as the creator, the lawmaker, the entire meaning of the Passover. He gives it its fullest revelation, its fullest meaning. And so the argument from the Christian church is that when Jesus victoriously raises on Sunday, he demonstrates the finality, the bookend, the conclusion that this covenant that has been long promised is accomplished, it is settled, it is done. They begin to worship him because he's the Messiah He's the one who's the the mediator of this covenant. They worship Him on that day. They begin to gather on Sunday because they recognize this is the arched example of the fulfillment of the new covenant. If anyone had any shadow of a doubt about whether Jesus Christ was the promise that Jeremiah 31 prophesied about and and promised, etc., etc., the resurrection wiped away all doubts. You see, that was the crowning of this new covenant era. And so the apostles and the followers of Jesus, they met on Sunday. They met on Sunday. The time of Reformation had occurred. The old vanished away. The old's waxing away. There was all kinds of things being done differently. Gentiles now are called brothers and sisters. They're actually viewed as people being in the covenant. When before, they were absolutely excluded. By this language of time of reformation, chapter 8, verse 13, ready to vanish away, we understand that through the ministry, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that superstructure that prepared His way is now beginning to be taken away. And I would argue, um, not to go down this rabbit trail, but I would argue that in 70 AD it was finally taken away. The superstructure of the Old Covenant with the final destruction of Jerusalem, the final destruction of the Second Temple that was established here at the time of this writing was leveled by Rome, completely taken away, has never been rebuilt again. Why? Because God is done. Do you see the implications of this for modern-day evangelicals? God is done with a theocratic nation called Israel. He's done with the Temple... He's done with the old covenant system. Everybody, man, woman, boy and girl, that has any hope to have any peace with God has to and only can come through this blessed covenant which Christ is the priest of and He dispenses by grace through the gospel. The gospel. It's the only means by which any man, boy or girl, no matter your ethnicity, that you will ever hope to have any blessed peace with Creator God. Speaking of Christ and that only way, we go to verse 11. He comes in his application. He tells us what these things meant, what they were for. And now he, he, he begins to focus on the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. He's showing the inferiority of the uh, tabernacle and the temple. Uh, he, he applies it. He shows what it was for, what it meant. It was pointing to Jesus. And then he comes into verse, seven, or verse 11 down to verse 14 and he continues on. We'll look more at verse 15 onward next week. But today he's focusing upon, is he not beloved, the sacrifice. There's the sanctuary, it's inferior, but now he's going to come to the sacrifice. And the sacrifice also of the old covenant system was inferior. Notice that the time of reformation, the marking at the beginning of this reformation where God's going to begin to do away with the old covenant system, which he had a purpose for. We saw today, to point to Jesus. He's putting it away. Notice that it's marked, verse 11, by the coming of Christ. The old authorized version, I love the language, Christ being come. 
Christ being come. Now to be certain, this isn't referring to Christ coming and going kind of like from village to village. No, 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 no. No. Especially as many of us are approaching this weekend and and, and the larger evangelical community is remembering the coming of Christ. This is the coming it's talking about. So the time of Reformation, the time of God putting away this, is marked by the nothing less than Jesus coming from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm. Verse number 11 is talking about Jesus' incarnation. Verse number 11 is talking about Jesus being God coming into the world, which marked significantly the time of Reformation, the beginning of the New Covenant, the transition between the Old and the New as taking place. Jesus' being come carries with it this wonderful idea that the, that the, the Bible it, it describes Him as taking on, this is significant, a tabernacle of flesh. A tabernacle of flesh. This, this union of God and man that we call in theology this a hypostatic union. And if you really think about it, we were talking about this, I think I was talking to Brother Ross about this before church, that uh, this coming, this, this Christ coming, marking the time of Reformation, it was the herald, it was the signal that all of redemptive history Something monumentous is about to occur. Something monumentous is about to change. And this is what he's teaching them. We're, back, we're right here in 2022. We've got about 1,700 years of tradition where Christians have been uh, very pointedly remembering this. But remember, these people, it's only been 50, 60 years. And he's, and he's trying to get them to see, remember when Christ came. Remember what that was. He was God. He came from the heavenly realms into the earthly realm. And he's telling them that marked the beginning of this. I'm telling you the gospel story again, basically. I think it's interesting appreciating this monumental place in redemptive history of Christ in verse 11 coming to earth. It's interesting that the Bible doesn't provide the date in which this climactic event took place. Have you ever thought about that? The Bible, the biblical historical data we look through is very careful to record the birth dates of all the kings, the earthly kings, but the heavenly king, who is a priest, symbolized figure, parable, a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, we're not given his birth date into the earthly realm. Nonetheless, we have to acknowledge it's one of the most pivotal points of all of history because it marked the time of Reformation. The time when God will covenant with his people differently than he did before. Verse 11 says Christ's coming is connected, notice, with good things to come upon the grounds of his priestly work performed in a more perfect tabernacle. Theologians go back and forth about this. What does this mean? What does this mean? He comes as a high priest of good things, good things to come, by a greater and a more perfect tabernacle. In my studies, there's two positions taken on this. One is his tabernacle is his actual self, his body, not made with hands. Supernaturally, you know, immaculate conception of Christ. His divinity and humanity put together. And it's through this union of God and humanity that is going to serve as the perfect tabernacle through which a sacrifice is going to come that accomplishes and makes final this legal grounds by which God can no longer look upon the sins of his people and their lawless deeds. Then other commentators, I think it's just as valid. I don't really pick a side here. They say, no, this is talking about the heavenly sanctuary that's described in chapter 6 and chapter 7. In other words, what the writer's trying to do is to say, listen, Christ is tabernacle. Christ is sanctuary where he is at. It's altogether heavenly. It's separate. It's superior of what's taken place. But no matter which way you look at it, what he's conveying, is he not beloved? He's conveying the superiority of Christ. That's ultimately what he's conveying. I think the harder thing to wrestle with in this text is when it says Christ being come as a high priest of good things to come. So in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily mean that the good things that Christ will bring is only in the future. Meaning that as a high priest, we're all waiting around, still waiting for the good things. In the context where he says this, 
the context of just saying that Jeremiah 31 has been accomplished, right? And the things associated, all the blessings. You remember the four blessings of the new covenant? He's telling them you have that, you own that, you possess that. And then in the context of Christ redeeming and spilling his blood, beloved, it makes the most sense to interpret this and understand this as this is saying Christ who has come marks the time of redemption, marks the time of reformation. He comes and he brings the good gifts of Jeremiah 31, which we just learned in chapter 8, verses 8 through 13. And we know there is good, there's good, still better things to come at the consummation. And so I'm proposing to you that the right way to interpret this and to be encouraged by this and to be edified by this and to remember it is that with the coming of Christ and what he has done, you have not only the blessings of the new covenant as described in 8, 8 through 13, but do you not have the words of the Lord Jesus himself of what he promises to you that you will inherit in the end? You possess eternal salvation. You possess an everlasting peace with God and a clear conscience because of the work of Christ. But some blessed day, you are also promised to be with Him in His presence forever. Our sanctified imaginations can't even comprehend what that may look like. He goes on now in verses 12 through 14 to zero in on the work of the blood or the sacrifice of Christ. Now, this was a little bit challenging because we have talked up until this point so much about the blood. But I want you to just notice some things that we just walk down through verses 12 through 14 to our conclusion. Notice, first of all, the cost of the redemption that's in verse 12. The cost of redemption was not by the blood of goats and calves, but the cost of the redemption was Christ's the high priest of this superior covenant's own blood. It cost him his own life's blood. So the cost of this wasn't without a life. And this is what we're going to get into next week when we look at the the technical aspects of what is a testament, what is a covenant, so forth and so on. It required a life. We talked about this before as well, is that the reason it required a life is because it was a penalty. It was a penal substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus. And so just as there was blood required in the old covenant system to show the severity of sin and the need for a life to be given in order for God to be legally able to turn his back toward the transgressions of people. So also here, it took the precious blood of Christ to be that cost, that means by which God would never remember your iniquities. You know, sometimes we have a great tendency to think better about ourselves and the sins that we commit, then we ought. And it's passages like this that we see that your little white lie, my little not telling all of the truth or all of the facts that can bring hurt and pain to someone else, require not the blood of a goat, not the, not the blood of a, of a dove, but the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in order to pay for it. That's how gross, that's how filthy That's how serious sin is in the sight of a thrice holy God. The cost of the redemption, which makes it far superior, was that it was His own blood. It humbles us when we see these things in the Gospel. It humbles us to know the severity of our sins. The beginning of all Gospel preaching begins with the law and showing us our great need of Forgiveness, our great need of the blood covering of something outside of ourselves. Where there is no law preached, where there is no truth about ourselves preached, there is not going to be any Holy Spirit wrought conviction upon the heart to bring someone in humble submission to the foot of the cross, recognizing that they need a Savior. Instead, they do. They make the mistake of what some of the New Testament Christians were doing or profess to be Christians. They compare themselves with themselves. They've never really seen themselves in the reflection of a thrice holy God's moral law. And so when they read passages like this, it doesn't carry the weight and the significance that it's supposed to and intended to do. Gospel specs. Gospel blueprints. Why did it require His own blood? That cost? 
Because your sins were so gross, so damnable, only one thing could legally allow God to no longer look upon you in your sins, and it was the blood of His own Son, which is pure and spotless, not the sacrifice of a sinful priest. Gospel basics. Gospel basics. Not only did it cost him, we see in verse 12, his own blood, but we also have what we see is not only the frequency of the price, of the cost. Notice that he gave his own blood, but he entered in once into the holy place. Friends, I don't, I don't need to give you much interpretation of that. You don't need much commentary on that. How many times did Jesus pay for your sins? The text says once. Remember, comparing the inferior to the, the, the superior. Jesus is sacrificed. His priestly work is superior because He only had to do it one time. And so, we do away with the nonsense of someone having to come again and again and again to ask for forgiveness in order to be saved. Enough with that foolish theology. Jesus, you see here, had a superior priesthood and a superior redemption and a superior sacrifice. Why? Because when He died on the cross for your sins, Abby, He did it one time. And when He did it that one time, it was legally sufficient to be accepted by God to never look upon your sins anymore. Dear friends, If that isn't something that makes you want to shout for joy, I don't have anything else to bring you today. Do you not see the preciousness of not only the cost, but the frequency? One time. One time. He is the exalted. He is the blessed Redeemer of His church. And notice the reward of His sacrifice. We we consider the means and the cost. We consider the frequency. But notice the reward having obtained eternal redemption for us. His sacrifice wasn't a possibility. His sacrifice wasn't a fool's errand. His sacrifice, going back to what we've been studying about the new covenant, was a requirement in order to bring fulfillment to the promise that the Father made to him in eternity past, that I will give you a people. I will give you a people. They will be yours. And this is when we sing those songs, Jesus paid it all, but by the, but by the blood. All those songs carry with them, young ones, this significance. That when Jesus died on the cross, He was purchasing to Himself not an unknown, unnumbered group of people. No, the us there is His church. The whosoever, any person, whosoever comes to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that is who He died for. You don't need me to... to to, to give you some big long expounded meaning of this having obtained eternal redemption for us notice the quality of the redemption it's not temporal it's eternal notice the validity of the redemption it is for people it is not for some unknown you know speckles of humanity that will come afterwards no, these old hymns, they carry much weight. When Jesus, when Jesus was on the cross, I was on His mind. Because He was purchasing us. He was purchasing His people. And then the ultimate climax comes in verse 14. For if the blood of the bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, if that old covenant system could do that, if it could remove year by year your guilty condemnation of your transgressions against the law of God and it could be purged away for the year, notice verse 14, how much more then? How much more shall the blood of Christ, considering its cost, considering its reward, considering its quality, everything that was in verse 12, how much more through the eternal Spirit 
offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And he is talking here nothing more, nothing less, but then that fourth promise in the new covenant that God will never remember your sins or your lawless deeds anymore. When your guilty conscience condemns you, dear friends, first of all, you bring it to the cross. And the second thing you do is say, God, I don't want to silence my conscience. It's the compass by which you give me and the Holy Spirit operates within me to grow me and to mature me. And where I'm wrong, I want to own where I'm wrong. But in this courtroom, in this covenant with Christ, there is no condemnation. No, this is one of the blessings that Christ's blood gives you. He wants them to see that. They could never have that in the old covenant. What's intriguing here? And I think even more so, he brings it out. It's not, a, it's not simple. But he brings it out in order, I think, to just shout the, through his little quill he's using, if that's what he's using, as much as he can to amplify the superiority of Jesus in this sacrificial work, in this superior sanctuary that he's trying to articulate here in verses 1-14. through 14, This phrase, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without spot to God. What in the world does that mean? Through the eternal Spirit. There's only two meanings it possibly could mean. One is, through the eternal Spirit, God the Spirit, giving Him in His humanity the strength to go through that horrible, dreadful cost that was required. Or what it means is that in his hypostatic union as both man and God, the eternal spirit which he possessed, he went through with 100% complete obedience of all of the requirements that the Father had made with him to do for you what you could never do for yourself. This is your Christ. This is our Messiah. Both God and man perfectly walking that Roman road to Golgotha in order to do a horrific thing so that we could once and for all be totally covered by His precious, atoning, perfect, eternal blood. Friends, why in the world would anyone ever want to add to that? Why would anyone want to take the specs, the blueprints of the gospel, and try to add an amendment? Me and Brother Mike, we work in construction, and I started off talking about specs. And we know from time to time the specs get updated. Um, architects will come across some new, they believe, right, Mike, that some new clever way to do something. We know out in the field it's never going to work, but they think it's good. And they want to amend the specs. They want to change the specs. But beloved, today in verses 1 through 14, what the inspired writer of this epistle is showing us, don't touch the specs. Don't touch the perfect superior work of Christ as your priest. Christ's sacrifice, Christ's superior sanctuary, in any way, shape, or form. Come and worship Him for who He is. Come and worship Him for what He has done. And most importantly, which has been the theme all throughout the book of Hebrews and it'll continue, is come and rest. Come and rest in the finished work of Christ. And it's only until you insulate yourself with these blessed truths and blessed specks of the gospel Will you be better prepared to serve as salt and light and sacrificially be who God wants you to be in your family, in your workplace, and the community where He's placed you? Let's have a word of prayer. Oh, Father God, we thank You, Lord, for these truths that we have considered today, such lofty themes, Lord, of the work and the person of our Savior and Lord, we do ask you to take the things that we have considered today and, and further in the hearts of your people, Lord, stir them up to provoke thoughts and meditations on some of the uh, different meanings and, and profound depths and truths, Lord, 
of these themes. I, I pray, God, that you will use them. You will use them to grow us, to mature us. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would feed us, Lord, upon more and more your blessed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he has done. We confess, O oh God, before you our sins. We confess before you, O oh Lord, our continual need of your work in our lives. We confess before you, O oh Lord, that our only hope, our only rest, our only security lies within this gospel that we have been talking about for the last several months. Lord, I pray. Oh, especially, Lord, as Lord, we're, we're going to approach the the, the remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ at His table. I pray that You would bless Your people. I don't know where everyone is at today, Lord, but You do. Lord, where there is someone who is on the ditch of presumption, I pray, O oh God, You bring them to the center. I pray, O oh God, where there is someone who is, Lord, abusing the grace of Your precious Savior Jesus in lasciviousness, I pray, God, that You will just cut them to the quick. Show them, O oh God, the severity of their sins. Show them the, the price that Jesus had to pay. Remind them, O oh Lord, of Your love for them. And I pray, O oh God, that that will, that will bring them away from those deceptive lies that sin so easily attracts us with. And Lord, I pray if there was one here in the ditch of condemnation, self-imprisonment, O oh Lord, with a beaten down conscience, Lord, of, of Father, what you have already forgotten and forgiven, I pray, Father, that you would minister to them. Show them this quality this, this preserving love and redemption of Christ, this eternal redemption that He has purchased for them by His own blood. Bring them, I pray, to the cross again today, yet this morning, and give them encouragement and, and help them in their pilgrim journey. All of these things, Lord, we know we do not deserve, but You demonstrate over and over again because of our union with Christ you richly remind us of and, and you carry us and you help us and we bless you for it, Father. Thank you. Thank you for this time that we have had to just pause and come before your word and consider the person and the work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we give you thanks, honor, and all glory. Amen.